This is episode nine of the Just Get Started podcast, and my guest today is speaker and author David Rendell. Let's get it started. friends, it's your host, Brian Andreco, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. This is where we talk with people from all across the globe, from all walks of life, but all with a similar mindset. They want to seek out to find what made them fulfilled in life and, and kind of break out of that box of society norms and just go all in full steam ahead to achieving those particular goals. So we break down you know, kind of different ways that across their own journey, right? And they're all at different stages in their journey, but different pieces of practical advice um, that you guys could take to help you start on your own journey. So I hope you guys enjoy each and every episode. There's some really intriguing guests that I've gotten the pleasure to speak with. But as I said, use this kind of as a survival guide to think about your own journey and the things you want to accomplish in life. And hopefully you can take a lot of different nuggets out of each and every episode so that you can go ahead and achieve greatness and achieve fulfillment and be the happiest version of yourself. Okay, so let's jump into the episode today and please welcome my guest, speaker and author, David Rendell. And David can be found online, drendell.com. That's R-E-N-D-A-L-L.com. Um, find him on Twitter, at Dave Rendell. Go check out his books on Amazon if you want. But he's got a couple keynotes, actually, on his website. I absolutely recommend um, if you want to get not only some, some great inspiration, um, but also he's pretty funny, too. So it's a nice combination. Uh, not surprised that he's a, a keynote speaker, and that's what he does for his career. But I actually met him for the first time at uh, the High Five Conference um, about a year ago, and just almost like he was speaking right to me, some of the insights that he shared. It's actually some of the things I'm doing today. Um, I got some inspiration from that particular keynote, and uh, and I thank David for that, um, even though he doesn't know it maybe until he listens through on this podcast and me saying it, because I didn't tell him that when I was uh, interviewing him. But I hope you guys enjoy the episode. He's just a, a tremendous uh, guy to talk to, and, and I think you're going to get so many key nuggets out of it that's going to help you in your own lives. So without further ado, let's jump in and let's uh, get into the interview with David Rendell. Let's get it started. Hey, David, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. No, awesome. Glad to uh, spend some time with you today. And let's jump right in. I wanted to, um, you know, there's a lot of great stuff. I Just to share with the, the audience, um, if they don't know, you know, I met you for the first time last year and you did a great keynote at the High Five Conference here in uh, Raleigh and absolutely was just blown away. Um, I've been to a lot of keynotes. I, I listened to a lot of speakers. And I really love your style and kind of how you commanded the audience and really gave some great feedback um, and some life lessons we can take with you. So I'm really appreciative of your time and kind of chatting through some stuff. And, and that's kind of where I want to start today, you know, especially with some of the different books you've done and, and some of the ways, you know, the speaking that you're doing. A lot of that stems from you talk about, you know, kind of being almost different, using some of your weaknesses as strengths and vice versa. Um, and kind of what is weird, you know, could almost be taken as a positive. When you were a child, you talk about, you know, kind of you're always told, hey, sit still, stop talking, pay attention, all that. Um, and you kind of strained from the norm a little bit, right, in terms of what you're doing today. Can you help help talk through the audience? Because a lot of us have heard that, me personally, of how that's helped you. And then we'll get into some other stuff. But just kind of a little background of, of that experience as a child and, and when you started to understand that, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, maybe I am different, but that's okay. 
Yeah, I mean, well, it took a long time because when, when people tell you it's not okay and they're the adults and you don't know any different, then, then you think they're right, right? You know, um, George Eliot said, we begin to believe what the world believes about us, you know? And so uh, it took a long time to get from the point of different is bad to different is good. Like I said, my parents said, you know, called me motor mouth, told me I needed to be quiet. My teachers told me to be quiet. People told me to calm down down and settle down and sit still and even in in, even in my adult life in my work you know I'd be in meetings and people tell me not to talk too much not to get so excited not to be so passionate about what I was talking about Uh, don't be so you know don't push your viewpoint listen more um, go slower don't uh, expect other people to work as fast as you um, so I, I do think that's the general message we all hear, uh, unless we have a really special sort of parent or teacher that comes along at some point that the different is bad and normal is good. Um, and yeah, it was, it was sort of an accident as an adult after hearing those messages over and over and over again, I started noticing that people seemed to like it when I was talking, um, it, it, like doing public speaking, even just small sort of volunteer presentations, people seemed to like it when I was when I was standing up and talking, people seemed to, I seemed to be successful when I was doing my own thing, in charge of my own thing, running my own business, um, taking on challenges by myself, working alone. Um, you know, people criticize me for not being a team player. That's because I'm good at working by myself. Um, and so, yeah, it was sort of an accident, sort of stumbled across it. And that's why I'm so passionate about speaking about this, because I think uh, some people are never going to stumble across it by accident. And... Um, and I want people to find out sooner and be able to have that benefit that comes to their life from uh, from being able to be who they really are instead of trying to be what other people think they should be. Man, I, I appreciate you kind of laying that out there because that's what I, and I hear this all the time. And I, I bet you, too, just in talking with other adults, right, is they think they have to stay in this path. Nope, this is what I go to school. I get a job. I work there for X amount of years and, and data, you know, yada, yada, yada. Is there any kind of advice you can give or at least maybe something they could, I don't know if it's something they could do, write down, something to to get, not only adults, but I'm even thinking more kids that if they're listening to this and they're in high school or early college, early career, that to start looking at, okay, this is what I thought was correct. How do I actually use what my talents really are, which may be looked at as weaknesses to maybe build a career out of? Yeah, so I think it's 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 a couple of things. First of all, obviously, it is that self awareness of okay, what are my strengths? Um, a couple of questions to ask yourself is when am I, when am I happiest? When does time fly? Uh, when do I really enjoy what I'm doing? And and not just enjoyment because we can enjoy something and not be very good at it, right? So if you're going to turn it into a living, at some point you have to combine those. What do I enjoy? And other people appreciate it when I'm doing it, right? Other people um, see the value as well. You know, American Idol is full of people who love to sing but can't do it, right? So putting those two things together, and that can happen in small ways, even like you said, when you're younger, you know, which classes do I enjoy the most? Where do I get the best grades? Which non-school activities do I enjoy the most and do the best? When am I succeeding? And how can I expand those? How can I create more of those? How can I move farther in those directions instead of how do I get better at that class where I'm struggling? How do I do better in that those that coursework that I don't enjoy? Um, what's the sport that fits me? If I'm not a good team player, how can I do an individual sport like golf or tennis or whatever it happens to be? Um, so I think it's just, yeah, giving yourself permission to do more of what you like to do, where we hear the no pain, no gain, and 
and uh, that kind of stuff. And we sometimes think that if it doesn't hurt, it's not giving us any benefit. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not going to accomplish anything. But I mean, I, I, I do what I love for a living, and it, it doesn't hurt. Uh, there's no pain, and there's tons of gain, right? And there's a lot of pleasure that comes with it, and there's gain that comes with it. Um, so I, I think we get a lot of wrong messages, and I think part of it's just giving yourself permission to do more of those things you're good at. Um, because sometimes we don't even let ourselves think about those things because we're busy thinking about, oh, I'm supposed to fix what I'm bad at. I'm supposed to improve my weaknesses. I'm supposed to fit into other people's path that they have in mind or the normal path. And so I think um, we have to give ourselves permission and then we need to start understanding ourselves better. And too often we're not even taking that look because other people are telling us who we are. And, you know, to that point, the um, was there someone, and, and you've mentioned growing up, obviously, if you, you're talking about your parents, some of that, was there like a, and even now, but when you were growing up around like a mentor, maybe it was a teacher, someone that kind of believed in you and, and, and maybe pushed you in the right direction. Can you share that experience maybe and, um, and yeah. how that obviously helped leverage you know, where you're, what you're doing now? Yeah, it wasn't until college, and it was a real small thing, but it was a real big thing. Um, I was a sophomore going into my junior year. It was, it was a semester before the junior year, and uh, the guy who was the resident director – uh, for the men's dorms asked me if I was going to apply to be a resident assistant. And uh, I said, no, I'm the reason you have resident assistants. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm the person that, that they're supposed to be watching and monitoring and reprimanding and those kinds of things. And he gave me a totally different perspective on myself that I'd never thought of. He said, no, everything that, that you think is wrong with you, everything that other people tell you is wrong with you, um, those are, those are what I see as leadership skills. I see those as, as influence. You're the kind of person that I want. I just want you to use your powers for good instead of evil. Um, and I'd never seen them as powers, and I certainly wasn't doing things that were that evil, but you get the idea. He, he saw potential and because he, he saw that he turned out okay, even though everybody told him he was bad, and he could see some of those same signs in me. And so that was the first step to seeing that my weaknesses were strengths that that I wasn't as bad as everybody thought I was, that there was an upside to things where everybody saw the downside. And that was the beginning of sort of, you know, you don't, everything doesn't change the moment you hear that. It doesn't change your whole worldview, but it starts to push you on a different path that, that ultimately um, changes things in a pretty big way. Oh, wow. That's, that's an awesome experience. Um, well, let's stick in college for a second then. Cause you went, so you majored in and you got in terms of psychology, right? That was kind of your big background. And I'm always curious is, do you think, and maybe there's a subconscious, maybe there's another way, but if you talk about high school or talk about even earlier, getting told you're whatever, did you want to learn the psyche behind like why people do things or why they say they like, do you think that was subconscious or was there a direct reason why you went into psychology? No, no, no. There's a really specific reason I went into it. Um, well, two kind of number one, uh, one, my best friend was, was killed in a hunting accident when I was 16 years old. Um, by one of my other friends. Um, and we went to a pretty small school and we were all pretty close. And he was, I was, you know, closer to him than anybody else. We moved schools a lot. I went to a, a different school for kindergarten and first grade, then another one for second, third, and fourth grade, then a different one for fifth and sixth grade, then a different one for seventh grade, then a different one for eighth and ninth grade. So he was the only person that I'd sort of had as a friend throughout my lifetime, you know, and, and losing him was a pretty, had a pretty big impact. And the fallout, psychologically, emotionally, um, with my friends and the people at our school was pretty, pretty severe. And during that time, I learned that people need help. People need support. People need someone who cares for them. 
people need encouragement. And so I sort of, that was the point at which I sort of set a mission for my life that was pretty broad, but also um, pretty clear that I wanted to be able to help people in some way. Um, and so I took that into college. I didn't know what the major would be. And then you have to take a you know, you have to take a social science as part of part of your general education requirements. And I signed up for a psychology class that was taught by the same guy who was the resident director. Um, and uh, from the moment he started talking, I just was fascinated by psychology. Um, I, I sort of intuitively got it. My Myers-Briggs is that I'm very intuitive. So it just made perfect sense to me. I was studying math at the time. And I could do it. I was getting A's in calculus, but I didn't get it and I didn't like it. And I, do, I didn't sort of feel like I was mastering it. But as soon as I heard psychology, it seemed like he was telling me things I already knew, um, but, that, but that I just didn't have definitions for. And so it was a combination of wanting to help people and then also being fascinated by it, which, again, I think is part of the point. I didn't go with psychology because it, it was tough and I knew I needed to do something difficult. I went with psychology because I enjoyed it and I was interested in it. And that passion and interest gave me motivation to do it and to do it well. And I think those are the kinds of things we need to look for. Going on, I'm going to go on a little tangent with that because, and that's obviously I hate, hate that, that, that tragic um, thing happened to you. Can you share though, and maybe, and obviously people that are going through difficult times, maybe not that extreme, but especially, you know, when, when I talk about, you know, just get started and get people motivated to do different things um, and hopefully give them encouragement. Is there anything from a psychology standpoint that, again, you can pull from to give people advice around, hey, if you are going through a tough time, maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, whatever, and you, and you still want to go for those dreams, any, anything that you can share with them that might be helpful to almost stay positive or, or keep moving forward? Well, I think I think it's it sort of ties into the title of your podcast. It would be to just get started. I think sometimes we make things so big, we think that we don't have, you know, we can't see the end necessarily. We don't know how to do all the steps. But I think at some point you 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 don't know what's going to be possible even halfway in until you just start moving forward in some way, right? So um, asking yourself, what can I do? What is working? Uh, what, uh, what do I enjoy? What's a tiny step I can take? What, what can I do if you're afraid of failing? What can I do that I'm fairly confident I could be successful at in a small way? How do I take a, you know, how do I take, you know, small steps, you know? And I, I think that's what all of my, uh, all of my stuff has been, you know, I didn't set out to become a speaker. I didn't set out to start my own business. I didn't set out to write books, life events and small steps and small movements in in different directions started leading me on a path that opened up doors that I never could have imagined at the beginning. I didn't start off with some grand plan. It was learning and, and making adjustments along the way. And if you don't get started, you can't. The way my dad explained it once is if you're looking down a road and you're thinking about where it's going to take you, you can never know about the road that goes off to the left until you get far enough down that road to see that there's that option, right? To see that there's that turn. Um, and, and the only way to find that out is to say, well, I don't know what's down there, but I'm just going to, I'm going to get started. I'm going to get going and knowing you can always turn around and come back sometimes if you need to. Right. Mm, that's a great point. That's a great point. Well, so when did on that turn, when did author come into play like Oh, huh, I'm going to write a book. When was that on that on that road that you were like, wait, yeah. this may be an interesting idea? Yeah, I mean, um, I was speaking at the time, not full time, but I was speaking and presenting. Um, I was working on my degrees um, and I kind of knew that I did want to start my own business someday. I did want to be a professor someday. 
um, and teach. And I knew that writing a book was a key piece of that. And also reading has had a huge impact on my life. I mean, I was a huge reader, um, not when actually when I was in school, I kind of hated school. But on my own, I was always reading things that I was interested in, how to be a better manager, how to be a better teacher, how to be a better person, how to be a better partner, how to be a better spouse, how to be a better parent. Um, so I I just wanted to, you know, you read enough of them, I wanted to write one. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to share um, my ideas in that format. Um, yeah, and it took a long time to to get to the point of doing it. And, and some things have changed in the world, making it easier to self-publish and things like that to make it possible for you to just decide, I'm going to write a book. You know, in the past, you sort of needed someone to give you permission. You needed someone to approve you. You needed someone to, to publish it. You know what I mean? You needed agents and you needed publishers and you needed, uh, you know, sort of corporate sponsors for that. Now you can just, you know, you can just sit down and write a book and, and, and it's on Amazon. Um, so, yeah, I think it just it was one of those things where I had long term goals and writing a book was sort of one of the steps in that process. And and same thing, you know, I, I just, you know, I thought, hey, if I can write papers for college and graduate school, all I have to do is write like 10 papers and that's a book, you know. Um, and so same thing. Start small. I broke it down into tiny pieces and broke down the tiny pieces into smaller pieces and started filling in the outline and filling in the blanks and adding stories and examples. And, and pretty soon I was sitting on a book. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Now, yeah, you, you stole my thunder on, on a question I was going to ask with it. That's awesome that, you know, kind of how do you chunk it out making the book? So that's a really good point there. Did you go the self-published route or did you go, did you have a publisher or both depending with the couple books you have? Um, with the first one, I published it through the college where I was working and then they did a pretty poor job of it. And at some point I was, I was first, I was happy to have a book and then I was sort of not proud of the, the finished product as far as the way it was printed and things like that. Mm. And so I updated it and revised it, and that's when CreateSpace, uh, that was before CreateSpace was purchased by Amazon, and I found them, and I updated and revised the book and published it through them and was really pleased with sort of the way that that worked out. Um, then I did my Freak Factor book, which was my second book through CreateSpace as well, and then now it's done through a company called Advantage Media, which they kind of help authors, mostly who are, they help people who are business owners and want to have a book, usually as more of a marketing piece or sort of a, an educational piece for their clients. It's not necessarily people who are looking to go out and sell a million copies. And since I was already referring a lot of my clients to them, they said, Hey, let's do your book. You know, since, since you're referring people to us, let's have you at least be able to say, you know, here's what, here's what they've done for me, you know? So uh, they didn't do a lot of the same things they do for everybody else. Cause I don't really need that. One of their key things is something called talk your book. So somebody who, let's say they're a chiropractor who wants to put out a book to help, you know, outline the main things they want their clients to do to stay healthy, but the person's busy being a chiropractor all day. You get on the phone and the person, you know, the company helps you write the book, design the book, publish the book, all that, and, 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 it, and that's the process. Um, I do want to say one thing about, you know, I said I broke it down into pieces. That's kind of true, but I think there's two ways to write a book, and I call it nibbling and chunking. Um, the nibble way is, you know, if you sit down every day for an hour, by the end of the year, you'll have a book, right? Uh, that isn't the way I did it. I broke it down into tiny pieces, but I sat down for basically seven straight days, blocked out everything off my calendar, wrote until my eyes bled, fell asleep, and then wrote again until I couldn't see and then fell asleep. And then, um, because for me, if I don't see the finish line, I can't work very, I can't work very well on mm. things. Um, and so I literally wrote the book in seven days. I mean, start to finish, um, 14, 15, 16 hours a day. Um, 
and I feel like your your mind and uh, your fingers can sort of get into uh, get some momentum, and you just sort of get into a zone at some point and, and that you can't get into when you're constantly stepping away from the idea and stepping back and stepping away and stepping back and stepping away and stepping back. Uh, my second book I wrote mostly from editing blog posts that I put out you know, gradually over a period of three years. And the goal of writing the blog wasn't to create the book, but that sort of ended up being the most of the material I needed. So that was really an editing process. Um, but with that one, again, I took three years worth of blog posts, locked myself in a room for seven days and, you know, created the book. Um, and it was more editing than writing. And, and so both ways work. I think it's, it ultimately, again, comes down to your strength. Sometimes people who don't like to nibble away at things a little bit at a time hear that advice and think they have to force themselves to grind it out every day, day after day in little pieces. Um, or when I tell my trunk story, then some people think, oh, their nibbling approach doesn't work. They need to block out time and get focused on it. I think either one works. It comes down to your style, you know? Mm -hmm. No, that's, yeah, you're right. And again, that self-awareness, what works best for you and being able to obviously alter that. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you too, and I want to make sure during this conversation, we chat about, uh, you know, the, the four factors of effective leadership. I know there's a lot of business, so a lot of other folks that are, you know, kind of listen to this and stuff. Just, can you talk about that little a little bit like being a successful leader um, in an organization, um, maybe things that you think are the most important or that you're seeing now different than when you first published a book, you know, that may be helpful for some folks as well, because I think I think it as well, whether you have one employee or you're managing a few people, a team or again, it's thousands. At some point, there's some big things that that all can can kind of take use for. Yeah, yeah. So, well, so, yeah, the four factors. um was my attempt, I was, I was managing people at a very young age, and it was my attempt to discover what really mattered, right? And I was reading a lot of books, and even in the things I was studying, it was sort of saying, we don't even quite, we can't even quite agree on what leadership is. I'm like, well, how am I supposed to do a better job at work tomorrow if we don't know what leadership is, right? Well, here's mm -hmm. a bunch of definitions and decide what you think. That'd be like me telling you, here's a game, I can't tell you the rules or how to play it or what the goals are, but do your best, right? That, that's, that's not helpful. So the book was really my attempt to take everything that I'd read and find the themes, right? Uh, yeah, people disagree, but what do people agree on, right? What am I seeing over and over and over again in, in all these different places? Um, and so the four factors are influence. Um, and, and there's a for each one, there's what I call a factor fiction. So there's an opposite. So influence um, is people following you willingly, people following you because they want to. The factor fiction is power. We think, well, they have to because I'm the boss. They have to because I'm in charge. They have to because I'll force them. Um, the next one is, is um, integrity. We have to be trustworthy. Um, and the opposite of that is personality. We just have to seem trustworthy. We just have to look good. We just have to have the right image. Um, it doesn't have to be substance. We don't need character. Um, the next one is inspiration. Uh, we need to get people excited about some kind of vision of the future. We need people to be following us in some direction. There's no place to follow us if we're not going anywhere. So we need to inspire people. Um, and the opposite of that is position. People think, you know, well, I'm the manager. I'm the boss. I'm the president. I'm in charge. Um, people have to follow me because that's just the way the legitimate structure works, right? Mm -hmm. And we all know if we've ever worked in an organization that just because someone's your boss doesn't mean you have to do what they say. And... Um, if they tell you to do things you don't want to do, you can quit and the person's no longer your boss. And then the leadership they thought they had vaporizes, right? Position is, is something that only works as long as I maintain my position in relation to yours. 
Um, and then the last one is improvement. We have to constantly be getting better, constantly improving ourselves, constantly making ourselves better. And then if we're doing that, we have to, we, we, uh, we need to develop other people as well. Um, and the, op the opposite of that is, is, um, uh, popularity. People just think, Hey, it's all about being famous. It's all about being on the cover of magazines. Um, it's all about, uh, you know, having people think I'm successful, not necessarily really uh, developing myself and others in a substantive way. And I might be not developing others specifically because I'm trying to stay on top and keep other people down. So I'm the one who gets all the attention. Mm, yeah. Okay. Um, well, then, yeah, that's interesting. Like I said, I, and I think folks should definitely check out the book because I, I think there's a, I've, I've had some different managers and, and, and talk with a lot of people that hear, I hear stuff and I'm like, man, there could be a lot more help in that, uh, in that realm there. Um, all right. So did I see that, that you, that, did you have a stint as a comedian at one point or I, I did I see that correctly as a, that you were yeah, a comic so, or comedian? I, I, I thought I'd bring yeah. that up to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, that's part of building on your strengths, right? So I always in school was making people laugh. One of the things I tell people is that the funniest kid in the class um, isn't the class clown. The class clown is the person who has the courage to say out loud what everyone else is thinking, right? Mm. Um, and so I had a lot of practice in school um, figuring out how to make people laugh, and I, I was pretty good at it, and I am, I am now even better at it. Um, and so, yeah, I thought I was making people laugh in my presentations and I was using humor pretty effectively, but I thought I could sort of take it to the next level. So yeah, I just went to one of the local comedy clubs and found out when open mic night was and got signed up. And I just started going back and working on my material and taking little bits that were small things that I would say that would make people laugh during the course of my talk and trying to expand them and really turn them into something more and trying to just... You know, it's like working a muscle going, OK, I'm sort of naturally funny. What if I tried to get funnier? Um, started under tried to understand why what I was saying was funny, how I could work on that and build on that. And um, then some of that led to, you know, really expanding some of my uses of humor in my presentations um, and even creating a presentation I have called Funny for a Change, using humor to create serious transformation. So I teach people how the process of change and the process of making people laugh are very, very similar um, and so I basically found a way to do an hour of stand-up comedy, but have it have a point. Mm. Um, and so I got to have a lot of fun making people laugh and people got to learn something at the same time. Mm. Um, getting into it, I realized that, you know, I didn't want a career in it. I don't want to spend the, spend my life traveling, um, to crappy comedy clubs and staying in lousy apartments with other, uh, broke comedians who are trying to make it big. Um, I already had a decent sort of life as a professor and I had my own speaking business and you can get paid a lot more to teach people things and make them laugh than you can to just make them laugh. Yeah. Um, and so I used it as sort of a, you know, as a building block, uh, to build on one of my strengths, but I, I didn't really have any intention of trying to, to veer off in that direction, but it was good to sort of get in that environment. And, and it's also, it's, it's more challenging when people come to a regular presentation and you're funny, the bar's really low because they don't expect that. When somebody pays money for you to make them laugh, the expectations are different. And so the response is different and you have to be better. And also the time was really compressed. So I got like, usually was getting like seven minutes or 10 minutes. Hmm. So I'd have a really tight sort of sense. Whereas in a keynote, 10 minutes is, you know, the introduction. 
Um, yeah. So it just it made me better in a lot of ways, and I'm glad I did it. But it, it wasn't going to be it wasn't going to be a career, but it was an interesting look into that world, and it did help me, I think, in a lot of ways to get funnier. And that's one of the big advantages I have as a speaker is that it's it's entertaining to listen to me. It's not just helpful. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask. What are what are maybe a couple things you took from that comedy experience or others similar to that 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 helps you in your you know your speaking engagements that you're doing all over the place. Is it, is well, it just the, you, is it being able to be comfortable or is it other things as well? well? I mean, it's that you have to earn people's attention, right? You can't make people listen to you. You can't make people do what you want them to do. You can't control people. So sooner or later, it's about saying what 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 is going to be get people's attention? What is going to be unusual? What is going to be interesting? What is going to um, get through to them? Am I speaking their language? Um, and, and I think those are important skills to have. When somebody laughs. It tells you four things. It tells you that they heard you, they understood you. Um, well, it tells you three things. It said that they heard you, that they understood you, and they liked you, or they liked what you had to say. Um, and that's a that's pretty powerful feedback, right? And so I think that's a lesson as a speaker and as a leader. Um, you need to be doing something to determine whether or not you're getting through. And, and when you use humor, you definitely if I'm if I say something funny at the end of a 90 minute speech and everybody laughs, it means they're paying attention to me for 90 minutes, and that's something. A lot of people can't get people to pay attention to them for five minutes. You know. Well, that well, that's actually a good point where I was going. You know, I remember um, you may remember this too. So years ago, Jerry Seinfeld had this this great stand up routine, and one of the points in it, like one of the jokes, was something along the lines of like they surveyed people and the number one fear was public speaking right after number two being death. And his joke was, his punchline was like, people would rather be giving the eulogy or rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy at at a funeral kind of thing. So I know a lot of people challenge, I mean, that's a huge issue. Just even getting up in front of their company or in front of a client presentation. Is there, is there some two or three things that you could give some practical advice to people that are, that do have to stand up in front of people. They're not going to do keynotes maybe like you're doing, but they do have to stand up. They have to, you know, maybe they're giving a toast at a wedding next week. I don't know that you can give them some tips to be better at that or be more comfortable in that environment. Yeah. The first one is don't, right? Just don't, if it's not your thing, just don't, you know, you can get through your life and not do it. And and if it's not your thing, I don't know that you should put too much time into making it your thing, right? If you feel like you have some potential or you have some interest, um, because to say that you have to, that's never true either. You can always tell people, no, I'm not doing the toast. Uh, you don't have to continue doing a job where it, you, it requires that. So, I don't think public speaking is something that most people go from bad to very good at. They might go from bad to acceptable, but as I talk about in my books, acceptable doesn't get you anything, right? Yeah. Um, but 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 to answer your question, I think there are some things people can do. The, the, one of the most important ones is how you interpret your feelings. So before we speak, people tend to say they're nervous, right? And when you say you're nervous, then you think the goal is to get less nervous because you have to calm down because you have to get yourself under control so you can speak, right? Um, I think changing the way you think about that slightly has a huge impact. So instead of saying you're nervous, you say you're excited, you're energized, your body and your mind are primed to get up in front and give a performance. And if you see it as a positive thing that you can channel as opposed to a negative thing that you have to shut down, I think it dramatically changes the way, not even that you feel, but that the way you feel about what you feel, which is a pretty big thing, right? and, And so I think one of the first mistakes people make is they go, I'm nervous and I have to calm down and I shouldn't be so nervous when 
uh, your anxiety or your sensations of anxiety are just basically your body priming you to get up there and, and do something just like if you're about to play a basketball game or something um you know I, I was watching the olympics before we started doing this i mean if someone isn't feeling something if someone's half asleep uh, before they go down the gold go down the half pipe for their gold medal performance they're probably not going to do a very good job you need a certain amount of stimulation right so i think that's the first one um you know, the second one that I think most people need to think about is, 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 you know, what's their sort of natural style? So just like I said, don't speak if you're not a speaker. If you're not funny, don't try to start with a joke, right? People seem to think there's a formula, you know? And so if you're not funny, don't, don't try to be funny, right? And you might even say that, and that will actually make people laugh. Get up there and go, I was thinking about starting with a joke, but I think we all know I'm not very funny, and people will laugh at that. Um, and then just be straight up. If you're serious, be serious. If you're so, I, th I think that's part of it. The, the the things that I told my students that I think were the most helpful, um, where there's four things you should do in a speech that'll make it better. Number one is tell stories. Talk about what you know and talk about it in the form of a story. Don't use bullet points. Don't use slides. Uh, don't talk in the way that most presenters talk. If you've got to get a give a toast. Tell a story that illustrates the positive qualities of the person that you're toasting uh, or something unique or important about your relationship with that person and then shut up and it's probably going to be an amazing toast, right? Well, that's why this guy and I are best friends. Well, that's why these two should be married because this thing happened on their first date and I was there and it was amazing. Um, so tell stories. Use quotes. Um, so if you're giving business presentations or you're trying to convince people of things, find other people who agree with what you have to say and, 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 and borrow that credibility. Um, use statistics and, and um, numbers to illustrate the importance of either the problem or the solution or to show that you've done research. Um, and the other one that I would really encourage is, is asking questions, right? Especially if you're trying to reduce your anxiety, come up with a good question that starts your presentation that takes the takes the focus off of you and puts it on other people. So you walk in there and you're supposed to be doing a presentation on time management. Your first question needs to be, man, what are some of the struggles that you all have with trying to manage your time? You know, ask people, raise your hand. How many of you struggle to manage your time? Everyone's going to put up their hands. Hey, let's just hear from, from a few of you. What are some of the things that get in the way of you accomplishing your objectives? Let's just hear from some people. People are going to shout some things out. Um, and now you're starting to make a connection with people, and then you can start working into your material. But that's better than walking in and going, I'm going to give you four ways to manage your time without creating that connection. And also that puts all the focus on you at the beginning if you're not comfortable with that. So asking questions, using quotes, using statistics. But the biggest and most important one is probably telling stories and talking about what you know. I did a, a public speaking course one time in Bahrain for a group of women at this large corporation. And um, in the Middle East, even more so than in, Amer in America, uh, women aren't given the same uh, respect as men. And so the, the, when those women are doing public presentations, they know that they're in front of men. They know they're not getting the benefit of the doubt and, and people aren't taking them seriously already right off the bat. Right. Um, and I could just tell from the vibe in the room that these people were not comfortable. They were. Um, they didn't want to do the practice presentation they were supposed to do. Um, and so I just started talking to them about, about speaking in general. And, and I asked them why I was comfortable and they weren't. And they said, because you do this all the time. And I said, okay. I said, so are you telling me you don't talk? And they said, oh, no, we talk all the time. And I said, well, what's the difference? And I'm like, that's not public speaking. I'm like, but it should be. If you make your public speaking 
as similar to your normal speaking as you possibly can, it'll probably be better. And when you talk to your friends, you tell stories. When you talk to your friends, you talk about stuff you know. When you talk to your friends, you never bust out a PowerPoint and talk about bullets. Right. Um, so, so what I try to communicate to people is make your speeches, make your presentations as similar to the way you normally communicate. You talk about things you know. You talk about things you like. Um, you tell stories. Uh those are the kinds of things you need to do. We learn the wrong lessons from the way everybody else presents, and then we do it just as badly as they do because we think that's the way everybody does it. Mm. Wow. That's that's great insight on that, David. Um, so last question for you here, and I want to talk about – so kind of the end on the, the thought of using your failures, becoming better from it, You know, kind of you know you don't fail, you learn type thing. What's one of the biggest failures you've had in your life that has helped you get to where you are today that you used as kind of leverage almost to prop you up? And that, that again, hopefully can help other individuals that go through similar things that, that they could obviously become better person because of that. Um, that's an interesting question. I think the way I'll answer that is I think that one of the things I do is I try to fail. Um, so it's not just that I'm trying to succeed and I end up failing. Sometimes I'm deliberately doing something on purpose that I don't know if I can do, but I want to find out where the limits are. So last year, um, in 2017, I was three months out from a major shoulder uh, fracture after getting attacked by some pit bulls while I was training for an Ironman. I got knocked off my bike, broke my shoulder, had to go to the hospital, get surgery, go through physical therapy. Um, that was September 2016, and I signed up for a 100K running race in January of 2017, just three months afterwards, um, and only about two months after I was even uh, given permission to start running again um, after breaking my shoulder. I couldn't ride the bike because I didn't have, and I certainly couldn't swim um, to do my Ironman training, but I could run. And so I wanted um, a goal that was going to really push me um, to do more running than I would normally do and to, to get me back into shape after, after the injury and going through rehab and not being able to do the things that I'd been doing. Because I was training for, a, for my second Ironman, and I had done one earlier that year, so I was in peak physical condition, and then all of a sudden I'm in the hospital and on the couch, right? So I signed up for this 100K race, which is 62 miles, and the farthest I'd ever run in my life was 40 miles. And I was also coming right off the couch and coming right off of surgery um, and, and I was pretty confident that I was going to fail. And that's a weird thing to say, right? But I was almost sure that there was no way I was going to finish it. But uh, I thought, well, I'll just see how far I can go. And regardless of whether I fail or succeed, it's going to it's going to get me out running and out doing things when otherwise it'd be easy to be depressed and frustrated and feeling like, well, I can't swim and I can't bike and I'm getting out of Ironman shape and I'm not going to be able to do the races I had planned to do next year and those kinds of things. Um, and it turns out I did fail. I, I did I did 50 miles. Um, and then I stopped, but I stopped because I ran 50 miles with my sister and she couldn't keep going. And that was the farthest she'd ever gone by about 24 miles. Wow. So it was a huge success for her. My dad, who's 70, came out and ran with us and ran 18 miles, which is farther than he'd ever run. 
Um, and so it was my longest run ever, my sister's longest run ever, my dad's longest run ever. I got to do it with members of my family. Um, it was a huge success and a failure at the same time. It's the only race I've never, I've, I've ever failed to finish in my entire life. The only, you know, event that I've ever started and not been able to complete. Um, and, and I think it was a success, right? And it taught me that there's a, there's more than one way to look at a failure, right? Was it a failure to not go 62 miles? Yes. Was it a failure to run farther than you've ever run before? No, that's a success. Right? Was it a failure to to uh, help a, a family member accomplish more than they've ever accomplished? No, that was a success as well. So I think there's a couple lessons there. You can interpret failure, as you said, in a variety of different ways. But I think the thing that I've tried to do is kind of seek it out sometimes because I, I, I talk about it. You know, the Olympics being a good example right now. Ironman's the same thing. When you see somebody who like loses control of their muscles a hundred yards from the finish line and crawls across. That's a person who's found the limits to what they can accomplish, right? If somebody cruises across the finish line, but they're in 15th place, they're a person who didn't push the boundaries. They weren't pushing the limits. They were staying well within what they knew they could accomplish. Um, I've tried to publish books probably five different times with major publishers. Um, most, in most cases, they contacted me, and we got all the way to the finish line. And for whatever reason, it got rejected. Um, I'm not going to end my life and wonder, oh, I wonder if I could have published a book. I've tried and I failed. 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 Um, and that's a good thing because I'm not sitting around going, I wonder if I'm not reaching my potential. I'm wondering if I'm failing to accomplish something I should be attempting. Um, so I think being able to look at it differently um, and in being able to move on to a different, I think sometimes failure needs to show us we're on the wrong path. This isn't our thing. We shouldn't be going in that direction. It's not our strength. And other times failure teaches us that, that we need to toughen up and, and push past and, and see what we can accomplish. When I broke my shoulder, uh, the feedback from a lot of people was, you know, you know, don't do Ironmans, don't, don't put yourself at risk, uh, do safer things, uh, get a new hobby. Uh, and I didn't do that. And last year I did two Ironmans and I did two ultra, ultra marathons and I did oh. two half Ironmans and I set personal records. And I raced every month in some, some race or another and was in peak physical condition at 44 years old. Um, that is, I know, one of my strengths. It's one of my passions. I've always been hyperactive, and, and now people praise me for that hyperactivity instead of punishing me for it. Um, but other things, you know, I'm not trying to publish a book with a major publisher. I make a lot of money selling my own book instead of getting $2 from the publisher every time the book sells. Hmm. Um, so that was a failure, but it also opened up a door for me to confidently do something else with my business that I might not have might might have thought of if I if I was if I was publishing when in, in the traditional format. Wow, that's a tremendous advice. I appreciate you uh, you sharing that. Well, where can folks where can folks find you? If they want to book you for a keynote, they want to check out your stuff online. Where where are you at online that they could uh, they can check you out? Yeah, my website is drendel.com. So D as in David, and then my last name, R-E-N-D-A-L-L.com. Uh, my my Freak Factor keynote's up there. My new one, Oppositioning, is up there. My books are on there. There's a spot on there if you want to book me to speak. Um, yeah, and uh, you know that's and that's what I do. I last year I did 95 presentations all over the world. Um, and, uh, most of them come from people and all of them come from people who see it telling somebody who tells somebody who tells somebody who tells somebody. So yeah, drendel.com. There's also, um, if, if, um, if you're interested in this for kids, I wrote a book called the freak factor for kids and I turned that into a free YouTube video cause I wanted people uh, to be able to share that and have that for free without having to buy the book, even though it is a book. Um, so if you just Google freak factor for kids video, 
Um, if you've got a kid who's got ADHD or dyslexia or is just getting teased or bullied or whatever, that message of sort of how our weaknesses are, our strengths, and the things that seem like negatives can also be positives um, is in that video, and it's, it's helped a lot of kids who are struggling. Oh, that's awesome. It's been a, a tremendous pleasure to have you on. I really appreciate your insight, and uh, I appreciate you taking some time out to, uh, to chat today. Thank you so right, much. Thanks a lot. Yep, have a good one. All right, see you, David. Well, thanks again to David for participating in the podcast and sharing a lot of his wisdom that he's acquired over his entire life and all the different things that you know he's been involved with. Um, hopefully, you guys will take a couple of pieces of that practical insight and, uh, and relate them to your own journey. As always, you guys can find me online on my website, brianondraco.com, B-R-I-A-N-O-N-D-R-A-K-O, on Instagram or Twitter, at brianondraco. Um, my Facebook page is the Just Get Started Podcast. Um, or even if you want to seek me out on LinkedIn, send me a message there, just you know, my name, Brian Andraco. But any feedback you guys can share on the episode, um, I'm very thankful if you just you know send me a quick note. Or even if I can make an ask, which, which I haven't through the first eight, uh, eight episodes, leave a review. Um, if you're on uh, iTunes, for instance, leave a quick review there, just a little insight on the podcast, what you've gained from it, how it's helped you. Um, that would be really helpful for me to get the word out more and for others that are seeking new podcasts that they want to listen to that gives them some insight, not only for me in you know my show notes or in my you know uh, podcast review, but actually folks that are listening through the particular podcast and, and what they can gain um, from listening. So thanks again for everyone for continuing to listen through this and any feedback again that is going to make this better and better. I, I'm certainly appreciative of it. We'll look forward to communicating and connecting with everyone uh, soon, and I hope you guys have a wonderful day. Take care.